right, everyone, I have 1230. That means it is time to get started. It's a good idea. Do I hear a second? <clears throat> welcome back, welcome back. Thank you for uh, those of you that were praying for me. I appreciate it. I had uh, knee surgery Thursday. Uh, it went a little longer than they thought. They had to take out a little more than they thought, but it's healing up pretty nicely, and I can move it. And, yeah, little knee lifts. So it was good. I even taught the kids class last night and kind of hobbled around on the mat and showed them different stuff. So I appreciate the prayers. Uh, and while you're at it, I put a muscle on back. <laughs> while we're on a roll, the, the, actually the back muscle pull was hurting worse than the surgery the entire time. <laughs> no, 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 no back surgery. Yeah, just pray that that little demon spasm back here releases. But um, <clears throat> I do want to thank you for that, for your prayers. Um, does anybody know, I can't remember, so I need to ask you, does anybody know if we said we're meeting next week or not? We, have, we haven't said it, right? I can't, okay. We should, next week, the week of the 4th, that's why I was asking, but it's the 5th, right? Next right. week, the 5th? Yeah. Uh, yeah. So I think we're still meeting. As far as I know, we're still meeting. All right. Um, but it is my birthday, so feel free to bring lots of, uh, lots of presents and cash and money orders. Um, yeah, yeah, I'll be 21 again. Yeah, for like the 14th time. Um, 17th time, good grief, time flies. Okay, so we're in, we're in Leviticus, we're in chapter 19, and we're coming up on, this is the third week we've been in chapter 19. It's really rare that we spend three weeks in one chapter, uh, but Leviticus 19 is kind of the, the peak, the second peak of the book. The first peak, and with the two mountaintop peaks, is the image we're using. So the first one was the Day of Atonement, back in chapter 16, and then uh, this one in chapter 19 is the heart of the holiness code. So it's telling Israel how to be Israel in the world. And this is the thing to remember about Israel. So God's relationship to Israel was a microcosm of uh, how God intended to uh, be in relationship to the world. Israel was to be to God a priest nation. They were to represent God in their relationship with God to all the people of the earth. That's key to keep in mind for any part of the Old Testament, but particularly for the law. When we're reading the laws, <clears throat> Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, it's really important to understand that because what we're seeing is God's relationship with Israel in covenant. And that's what it is. It's covenant. God made this covenant with Israel. He didn't make this covenant with Egypt. He didn't make this covenant with Babylon. He didn't make this covenant with any of the other nations. He made this covenant with Israel. So we can't just read the covenant with Israel and go, oh, that's what we should do today. Because it's not. It's not what we should do today. The covenant itself says it's covenant with Israel. And Jesus himself said he came to fulfill and complete that covenant. So denominations or churches or well-meaning pastors that look to the old covenant and just say this is what we do today as well-intentioned as they may be, are, are very, very wrong. Because the covenant does not all apply today. And it doesn't, it's not even a case of some of it still applies and some of it doesn't apply. As a covenant, as a body of law, none of it applies today. As a body of law. However, the underlying ethical foundations 
upon which this body of law is built absolutely continue to apply today because the same God gave them who is the same God today. That sounds like a rhetorical distinction for some people, but it's a crucial distinction to understand. It's the reason why Christians do things that the Old Testament says don't do, but then Christians are very adamant about not doing some things that the Old Testament says not to do. It's not a matter of picking and choosing, at least it shouldn't be. For some Christians it is, unfortunately. But it shouldn't be a matter of picking and choosing. Rather, it should be reading the covenant, seeing the covenant, seeing the ethical foundations, seeing the theological foundations, and then extrapolating those foundations out of the setting of uh, 2nd millennium B.C. Israel into 2nd millennium A.D. us. That's the task that we have to do as interpreters. And it begins with understanding what the law was saying to Israel in Israel's time, then pulling out from that what the law has to say to Jesus' followers on this side of the cross. So that's always the task before us, and it's always worth repeating because it's, it's the basic fundamental uh, approach to the entire Old Testament. And I, I rarely hear it taught in churches that way. Uh, I mean, some, many pastors do it. They just kind of do it in their own study or in their own interpretation. I mean, they preach a great sermon, but they don't ever actually equip their people in the pews to know this is what I'm doing. This is how we do it. This is how we do theology. This is how we do biblical theology. And so what, with this study, hopefully you're learning as we go through these books, you're learning not just what it meant to them, but then also how to see those principles that underlie what it meant to them, and then how to apply those today. And no chapter is that easier to do than chapter 19, because as we've seen, the laws, they cover everything from the home, the family life, the worship life, the economic life. They run the gamut of all of Israel's life because they're showing how to be holy, how to be a holy people under this covenant that God made at Sinai. And in particular, in contrast to the nations around them into which God's calling them to live. So we ended, I think, with verse 16, 15 last week about God's uh, talking about justice and says, don't pervert justice, don't show partiality to the poor or favoritism to the great, but judge your neighbor fairly. We talked about justice being balanced and fair rather than leaning one way or the other. Then he goes on to say, do not go about spreading slander among your people. Do not do anything that endangers your neighbor's life. I am the Lord. And that phrase literally is do not stand upon the blood of your neighbor. In other words, you don't get ahead. You don't establish yourself at the expense of your neighbor's blood. So even, if, even though murder is already ruled out, obviously, and uh, but even more than murder or killing someone is even doing something that you know will endanger their life, even indirectly contributing to their bloodshed. God's, God's the Torah, the, the, the law that he's giving is pushing in. It's not just outward obedience. It's pushing in towards the heart. Even the Ten Commandments, they push in towards the heart. The final, ten, the final commandment of them all, do not covet. That's entirely done in the heart. It cannot be enforced externally. Uh, because this is, these are not just enforced by judges, but they're enforced ultimately by God himself, who calls everyone to account. So, you know, don't spread slander, don't do anything that endangers your neighbor's life. And I don't think it's a coincidence that those two are back to back, because slander oftentimes does uh, 
result in what we, I mean, we even had the phrase character assassination. That's a real thing. People's lives are ruined because of lies and slander. And Jesus and the New Testament authors all list slander in the vice list right alongside murder and idolatry and sexual immorality. Gossip and slander are seen as two of the most serious sins in the New Testament as well as the Old Testament. And yet, how many times do we turn a blind eye towards those? So that's something that, again, if, if, we, if we're going to be biblical, faithful Christians, you know, you hear, this time of year it's political season, so every politician wants to get the Christian evangelical vote. So they'll talk about being biblical values, biblical values. Never mention slander and gossip, which is pretty much what most campaigns rely on in order to get you scared to vote for the other person so you vote for them. So, so that's what, when, when, when candidates claim to be Christian, listen to their words and watch how they respond in those things. Don't, the, the big things, marriage and abortion and all that, those are easy to jump on the right side of. The little things, slander, character assassination, gossip, partiality and justice. Those are the things that are right here at the heart of God's Torah. Then he goes on to say, verse 17, this really, this narrows it right in. I said it goes to the heart. This is the center of the, the chapter. Do not hate your brother in your heart. Rebuke your neighbor frankly so you will not share in his guilt. Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against one of your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. How many of you thought Jesus made that up? Love your neighbor as yourself. Yes. It, it's remarkable how few things Jesus actually came up with on his own. I mean, most of what he taught you find in Torah. Because he was calling, like any good prophet of Israel, he was calling people back to the heart of God's covenant in order for him to fulfill it and bring about the new covenant. But this, um, you know, do not hate your brother in your heart. This is, you don't find this in other ancient Near East legislation. You don't find laws against hatred. You can't. I mean, you can't enforce that. There's no way to enforce that unless the one who is overseeing the law is the one who searches the hearts and minds of his people. But right here at the heart of the center of the chapter that's the center of the book, that's the center of Torah, the very center, the epicenter, if you will, right here in the middle of it is do not hate in your heart, but love your neighbor as yourself. It's not a New Testament concept not a New Testament concept. It's an Old Testament concept. And we should never forget that. So then he goes on in the second half of this chapter, verse 19. Uh, he goes on to say, keep my decrees. And then you could put such as, or, or here's an example of the decrees that he wants. Uh, right in a row. Do not mate different kinds of animals. Do not plant your field with two kinds of seeds. Do not wear clothing made of two kinds of material. Now, there's some discussion. Okay, why are these here all of a sudden? Um, he's just gone from heart inward notions of love and, and hate to animal husbandry and uh, textiles practices. Why? What's going on with that? There's different speculation that people have. Some say this is just an example of God giving them commandments for them to keep to show that they're going to be different. And that's true. It fits right along with the rest of the chapter. And so part of what God's doing through Leviticus is this object lesson. Right? He's, he's giving them an object lesson, giving them the children's sermon, so to speak. And so by their daily actions, they'll be meticulous about separating, keeping things separate 
So there's seeds in their field. They'll keep separate. They won't just scatter it out and whatever grows, grows, and that's what they harvest. No, they'll be, they'll be very intentional. When they're weaving their garments, they won't just, any kind of thread they can get, weave it in together, different colors, different this and that. No, they'll be very meticulous. Um, you know, when they're with their animals, they'll be very meticulous about mating within the, the species. Obviously, if they're not the same species, you can't mate them anyway. But even within the species, the different kinds, the different, you know, things. So, you know, donkeys and horses, they're not going to make mules. Like, they're going to keep them separate. So, in all of that, there would be a daily focus on separating things. And that fits right along with the nature of God himself, because what did he do in the creation account? He separated the day from the night, the skies from the waters, the land from the seas. He separated. And then he separated Israel from the nations. So this would be a daily object lesson, that they are a separate people, and it's even communicated in how they do these seemingly mundane tasks. So that's one reason for this, possibly. Another reason is um, <clears throat> these things, the, the different kinds of animal or, or, or mixing of things, particularly the garments, was seen as, in, in the surrounding cultures, and even within Israel, that was seen as in the realm of the gods. So in other words, what do I mean by that? Well, when Israel, when, when, when the cherubim, when, when uh, the prophets get a vision of the cherubim, the heavenly hosts, and, and all these things, you'll, it'll, there'll be these mixtures of animals and people. Like Ezekiel's vision, it'll be like one, the face of a lion, and then the face of an ox, or the body of a man, or, or the face of a woman, or this and that. Um, same thing in Revelation. They'll see the same thing. They'll have one face of this, one of that. The ancient uh, gods in the ancient Near East were frequently mixtures of animal or people or two types of animals. You know, the, the wings of a lion, I mean, the claws of a lion, the wings of an eagle. You know, you get kind of the sphinx type thing. So in the ancient world, it was seen as the realm, of, maybe the realm of the divine. And the same thing with mixed garments. In Israel, back in Exodus, the priest's garments were of different kinds of thread. The priest's garments were because they were the heavenly representative of humanity. They were the ones who could approach the veil. They were the ones who could put one foot in on earth and one foot in heaven as they ministered in the tabernacle. So other interpreters look at this and they say this, this prohibition against mixing is not just an object lesson about being separate, but it's also enforcing the holy separation that exists between the divine, where you do have those concepts of the mixing of things, and the earthly where you don't. So that's possible. And if you look in some commentaries on this passage, you might see things like that. At the end of the day, we don't have a solid explanation for all of these laws. We just know God says, you're going to keep my decrees. You're going to do this. You're going to do this. You're not going to do this. You're not going to do this. And so sometimes we find ourselves in the position of Eve in the garden, or Adam and Eve in the garden, is God's given a prohibition that we don't maybe know why. We don't know, you know, it may look, what, what's the harm in two types of threads in your garment? Ancient Israelites might look at it and go, what's the big deal? All our neighbors do it, what's the big deal? Same thing with eating, you know, what, what's the big deal about eating this fruit? It looks good to eat, pleasing to the eye, it, it, it looks as good as any other fruit, what's the big deal? So sometimes God may not give us the why of his commandments. And then, therefore, the why becomes every parent's favorite answer. Because I said so. Yeah. Every parent said that. Now, does that mean that you have no reason for telling your kids to do those things? No. But sometimes it means that they either can't understand 
or you don't you want them to base their actions on your authority as the parent not on their ability to reason out the consequences you don't always do that as a good parent you guide your children you give them reasons why they don't stick the fork in the light socket and you give them reasons why they don't but you don't always do that you know sometimes you want that just because I said so because I know better than you and because I care about you more than you care about yourself that's why so sometimes and that's where theologians get kind of squeamish when they come to the Old Testament passages and they just seek out and they have to demand an answer for everything and sometimes the answers are there but sometimes we don't know. And at the end of the day, you know, mixing two kinds of seed in a field, we don't exactly know. There may be an answer. We may unearth some inscriptions from the ancient Near East next week somewhere in, in the Mesopotamia that actually say mixing of the seeds in the field was a way to bring fertility to your crops in the ancient world. And that's how everyone did it. And of course you'd do that. So then we'd read this and go... There you go. God was saying, no, you're not going to do this type of idolatry or this type of sorcery. That may happen. It's happened before. But we can't be 100% sure of it. So in the meantime, we go with the nature of the God that's giving these commands rather than our ability to reason out every single one of them. This is what Israel was to do in their day. That's what we as believers in the New Testament do as well. So he goes on to say, verse 20, then it's going to move into the area of um, this, this whole area of, of sexuality and, and, and fertility. It's all kind of mixed together. These are things of fertility and sexuality, and they're not neatly delineated as we've looked at before. He goes on to say, if a man sleeps with a woman who's a slave girl promised to another man, but who has not been ransomed or given her freedom, there must be due punishment. They're not to be put to death because she's not been freed. The man, however, must bring a ram to the entrance of the tent of meeting for a guilt offering to the Lord. With the ram of the guild offering, the priest is to make atonement for him to the Lord for the sin he has committed, and his sin will be forgiven. This is a law that's weird for us. One, because we don't have the same view of betrothal that they had in ancient Near East, and two, because we don't have life family servants. You know, we, we just obviously don't have that anymore. So we have to peel back a couple of layers. The thing that's notable about this, first, in, in the culture of the ancient Near East, you're, you're evid, and we've talked back in Exodus about the difference between Evid and, and modern day slave and how slave isn't a great translation but servant is too weak of a translation so it's somewhere between the two and we don't have a good word for it so we just have to call it what it is which is the Evid, the Hebrew worker but your, your Evid was considered in one sense the, the, the servant slaves had, they had rights they, they were, you know, if you, we saw in Exodus and if you missed it go back and check the video on the uh, YouTube page, but they had rights. They had human rights. They had way more rights than they had in the other ancient Near Eastern cultures. They weren't just property. But in the ancient Near Eastern world, they were property. So this law immediately is, is, is differentiating that. It's going into that situation and saying, no, no. In, in other cultures, if you slept with the slave girl of the, the household, the household servant girl, who cares? It's just a servant. It doesn't matter. But in Israel's culture, God's saying, no, 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 this, this is a sin. This is particularly because she was going to be wed to another man upon her release. And there's another thing, slaves in Israel weren't for life. It was seven years, and then you had to set them free, and you had to give them provisions to start a new life. You had to send them out with more than they came in with. 
So ideally then you would promise your household servant, the head of the household would arrange the marriage like any other marriage, like a daughter or a son. And upon the release of that uh, servant after the seven years, then they would be released, they would be given their dowry, they would be able to marry and, and go about their life. But if someone slept with them before that happened, then that would, cons that would basically, for lack of a better word, ruin them from any prospective husbands that would come because having someone who was virginal in the ancient Near East was a high-prized thing because of you know, inheritance laws and fatherhood and there's no DNA testing and all that kind of stuff back then. So just in general, your bride was, that was considered the wedding night was the time that they, the first time that they had sex. So if you had, were marrying someone they had already been slept with before, then all kinds of things were called into question, including family honor and all those things that still happen in cultures around the world today. So what this was saying is you can't just because someone's a servant doesn't mean you can just do whatever you want with them. Doesn't mean that you can treat them as uh, sex slaves, basically. No, if this happens, this is sin. It is sin. You have sinned against the person out there. If they're not, because they're not free, because they're not fully betrothed, the full process, if they were betrothed, then the penalty would be death. You sleep with someone else as betrothed, whether you're technically married or just pledged to be married, you've committed adultery. Penalty for adultery, we'll see next chapter is death. But this is the case of like slightly less than that. So it's still a sin, but it's not a mortal sin because the marriage covenant hasn't been attacked as directly. And so there's uh, atonements made. There's, there's a, you have to go, the sin has to be atoned for. The sin has to be taken care of. It's not just a case of, so in this weird way that's hard for us to understand, but it's because so, it's so roundabout, this is actually saying you cannot do with people what you want to do with them just because they're your household servant or somebody else's household servant. You're not, they're not technically betrothed to somebody else yet. Like you can't, the loopholes don't apply. So it goes on to say, I don't want to spend too much time on this because other chapters will bring up these issues, especially in Deuteronomy. But he goes on to say, uh, verse 23, another kind of odd, but it still has to do with sexuality and fertility. When you enter the land and plant any kind of fruit tree, regard its fruit as forbidden. And literally the word is, there should be a footnote there in your Bible, and it should go down to the bottom. It should say Hebrew, uncircumcised. Is, the word is not forbidden. The word is uncircumcised. You are to regard the fruit of that tree as uncircumcised. In other words, Gentile, non-covenant. This is not to be part of the covenant people. Uh, when you're in the land plant any kind of fruit tree, regard its fruit as uncircumcised. For three years, you were to consider it uncircumcised. It must not be eaten. In the fourth year, all its fruit will be holy, an offering of praise to the Lord. And then in the fifth year, you may eat its fruit. In this way, your harvest will be increased. I am the Lord your God. Now, this is from ancient uh, horticultural practices. This is just good farming. Uh, the first few years that a fruit tree is planted, if you, if you harvest the fruit and eat the fruit, it's not that great. And it also doesn't allow, I don't know the details because I don't have a green thumb, but by, by harvesting rather than, than pruning and cultivating the tree for a few years, um, it actually stunts the growth of the tree in some way. Like there's, there's a, you're, you're supposed to let it 
do its thing, let it ripen, let it mature. And so God's using in this this symbol of uh, circumcision, which is a symbol of the covenant. And he's basically, again, this would be a test for the people. You get into the land, you're eager to plant your crops. As soon as the, and this is for fruit trees, it's not for like corn or regular stuff. But um, as soon as you plant your tree, the first time that it blossoms and the fruit comes out, you're like, yes, I've, I've labored a year for this. I'm ready. And God's saying, no, not yet. Not ready. And then the next year, okay, maybe this year, God's saying, no. Three years, you're not to touch it. It's uncircumcised. Then the fourth year, all of it goes to God. So you've waited four years for this fruit, and now you have to give it all to God. But the promise is if you do that, God's saying, I'll increase your harvest. In other words, the fifth year, if, if this is done right, either naturally or through God's divine supervision, the fifth year will make up for everything else. And from then on, it will have an abundant harvest. And so your olive crops will, will be, you know, it, it will be a land flowing with milk and honey if you are keeping this covenant in mind. Again, it's, a, it's very much a test of faith and obedience like any other sacrificial laws are. Then he goes on to say, verse 26, reinforce, do not eat meat with blood in, still in it. He's already talked about that throughout the chapter, so you can go check the earlier videos if you want to know what that's about. Verse 26 uh, goes on, do not practice divination or, and the NIV has sorcery, but when you think of sorcery, I think of like Gandalf or the sword and the sorcerer, you know, a guy in a wizard hat shooting lightning or calling dragons or all that kind of stuff. That's not what biblical sorcery was. Biblical sorcery is actually the word is soothsayer. And it's, it's someone who, who would manipulate the elements in order to read what's going to happen in the future or what's going on in the world. It's much closer to fortune telling, uh, divination and fortune telling. So whenever you see sorcerer, it's just a weird, I don't, that translation, because of our pop culture, has always been misleading. You know, you think of these wizards fighting each other or whatever, calling down thunder on people. It's not that. Think of fortune tellers. Think of Mama Cleo or whatever her name is on the psychic hotline. Or, you know, the palm reader down on the corner that you can drive by and get your fortune read. Think of that kind of stuff. Because that's what he's saying not to do. And then he goes on related. Do not cut the hair. And literally it's not cut, but it's round off. Do not round off the hair at the sides of your head or round off the edges of your beard. So people have said this is, these are the hairstyles of... Pagans. These are the hairstyles of uh, these soothsayers, these sorcerers. Um, others say, well, in, in Israel, the beard for men was the sign of your virility, your manliness, your, your manhood. You know, like today, there's a modern beard movement where people are passionate about their beards. And the big beard you have, it's like, yeah, I'm a man, you know, like, uh. and, and that's actually how it was in ancient Israel. If you wanted to emasculate someone, you would tear out their beard. You would shave off their beard. You would cut off their beard. That was a way of emasculating them. And, and it's also in contrast to Egypt because as we saw back in Genesis, Egypt, they were very metrosexual. They were the, the ones who shaved and waxed and trimmed and redrew their eyebrows on. And, you know, you see the statues of Cleopatra and them. They always have perfect eyebrows. They have like Kardashian eyebrows because they took the time to shave it all off. They thought hair, body hair was gross. They thought beards were disgusting. They thought that was like hairy animal stuff. So there was this contrast between the Israelites who were very much like lumberjack and then the men of Egypt who were very smooth 
And, and so it was, it, it, it's, it, part of this is God, it could just be him saying you're going to be different and you're not going to be like the others. Again, we don't know exactly, but we know for Israel, they were to be Israel. And, and in this particular aspect, their beard and their hair was considered part of the covenant identity of who they were. Then it goes on to say, do not cut your bodies for the dead or put tattoo marks on yourselves. I am the Lord. So in this culture, cutting for the dead and tattoo marks, when someone died, you would mourn them. You would, you would scar yourself. Or you would do it to ward off evil spirits. Or there would even be the idea that if I cut myself and, and, and make blood flow, then it, then it appears that I'm dead or dying, and then the evil spirits will leave me alone, and we'll go find somebody healthy and attack them. Or any number of other practices that went along with it. Tattoos up until very modern history were spiritually significant rather than just decorative. I mean, tattoos were very culturally and spiritually significant. Today, they're just, you get drunk on spring break and you get a dolphin on your ankle or something. You know, like you, you, you want to look tough so you get a barbed wire on your bicep or whatever. I mean, it's just, you know, you, you put your, your, your child's name or your mom if she passed away or any of this kind of stuff. Today, it's, it's more like, it's like a decorative thing. But back in the biblical world, it was very much a spiritual and a cultural identification, much more so than it is today. And again, God's telling his people, you're not going to do that. You're going to be different. So, I mentioned this before, but it's worth mentioning because this is the passage. Christians today, for some reason, you will run into Christians who say you shouldn't get tattoos. The Bible says not to get tattoos. Don't get tattoos. The Bible says not to get tattoos. Don't point to Leviticus 19. Unless they have a gigantic bushy beard and long curly sideburns, they are just as guilty of breaking the law. Because that very verse right before this says... Don't trim your beard or the sides of your hair. That's the picking and choosing mindset. So you walk into a fundamentalist church where the preacher's railing against tattoos, and they're usually clean shaven. They certainly don't have a big bushy beard. So that's an example of hypocritical biblical interpretation. That's why Christians today can have tattoos. I've designed tattoos for people. A tattoo, like anything else, can be an expression of identity. It can be a witness to your fate or, or a memory of someone you love or anything else. Your hairstyle can be whatever you want it to be because we're not first covenant Israel. We're new covenant Christians. And in Jesus, these cultural divides, which is what these things were, they were cultural divides, Jew and Gentile, Israel, non-Israelite. Those cultural divides in Jesus have been subsumed, and now our identity is in him, not in our ethnicity or our culture. So we are Christian before we're anything else. I'm Christian before I'm Irish. I'm Christian before I'm white. I'm Christian before I'm male. My identity is in Christ first. Those cultural markers then have faded away. Furthermore, as a Gentile, I was never under this covenant. I was never under the, the Mosaic Covenant. My people were never under this covenant. So for Israel, they were not to get tattoos. So a Messianic Jew today might have to do a little more thinking about, okay, out of respect of my people and a cultural identity and my heritage as Israel, should I keep these laws? Should I grow the beard? Should I not get tattoos? Should I do these things? And there are very many Messianic followers of Jesus today who are convinced that 
for them, because their ancestors were under this covenant, for them, they want to continue to honor that heritage, but in a way that honors Jesus. So they do it all because of their faith of Messiah. And Gentiles are free to keep or not keep these aspects of Torah. That's not picking and choosing. That's seeing covenant in its proper historical context. And so that's something that we as believers are called to do. Uh, let's finish up because we're out of time. He goes on to say, verse 29, Do not degrade your daughter by making her a prostitute, or the land will turn to prostitution and be filled with wickedness. Observe my Sabbaths, have reverence for my sanctuary, I am the Lord. Do not turn to mediums or seek out spiritists, or you, for the, you will be defiled by them, I am the Lord. Rise in the presence of the aged, show respect for the elderly, and revere your God, I am the Lord. Verse 33, and this one's very dear to my heart. When an alien or immigrant lives among you in your land, do not mistreat him. The immigrant living with you must be treated as one of your native born. Love him as yourself, for you were immigrants in Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Do not use dishonest standards when measuring length, weight, or quantity. Use honest scales, honest weights, an honest epha, an honest hen. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. And he ends it, keep all my decrees, all my laws, and follow them. Why? I am the Lord. That's the ultimate rationale God gives for everything in chapter 19. Is not because it will prosper you, or because you were slaves in Egypt. Those are, those are reasons for some of them. But all of them, the basis is, because I'm the Lord. And I'm the one who's giving this covenant. Because I said so. And I'm the only one who's trustworthy enough to do such things. So, we're over time. Come back next week. Leviticus 20, very controversial chapter. We're going to step into it and see what we can make of it. Uh, if you need seconds, they're available. Otherwise, have a great week.